Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to artists about their favorite albums. Today, we're talking with John Worcester of Superchunk, Mountain Goats, Bob Mould, and of Best Show fame. We talked about The Clash's 1979 album, London Calling. Big fan of John Worcester's music and comedy, so it was a huge honor. Honestly, the only thing we didn't dig into was Bob Mould and our mutual love of Who's Who Do. I guess there's always next time. Superchunk are reissuing their 2001 album, Here's to Shutting Up, in underrated favorite of mine. Mountain Goats, last release, Dark in Here, and Bob Mould, last release, Blue Hearts. Before we get into the chat, please check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. Thanks to all the new patrons. We have a new weekly Patreon exclusive series going on there with my co-host Sarah Blumenthal. We recently chatted about La Tigra and AFI, and we have so much more upcoming. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at SpinningOutPod. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Those things really help. Okay, let's chat with John Worcester. Hey, John, how's it going? I'm good. I'm in my little house here in Chapel Hill, and I had to turn off all the fans and the air conditioning so there's no buzz. So I think it's going to get really hot in here in about 15 yeah. minutes. But Yeah, I, I told my wife to turn <laughs> off the AC and don't make a peep. Right, right. Yeah, and I stared at our dog, and I said, I'm talking to someone really important today. That's right. So don't let me down. <laughs> okay. Uh, we are talking about the Clash's... 1980, I guess, or 1979, depending on where you lived, album, London Calling. And when was the first time you either heard this record or heard The Clash? Well, um, the, the first time I, I heard the band, um, let me first say that, that around, around uh, towards, the, toward the end of the year in 1979, mm-hmm. I started uh, uh, picking up uh, Cream Magazine. And they were starting to write a little bit about about you know new wave bands like the Pretenders and and the Police and and the Ramones and the Clash and that sort of thing. So that's pretty much where I first heard of the Clash. And um, I I grew up about thirty five miles northwest of Philadelphia in the the Mennonite farmlands, which is which is like a little bit hipper than the the Amish uh, Mennonite drive cars. Uh, but very, you know, super non-musical area. I didn't know anyone really uh, at first who who was into into that kind of music, and um, so it was really hard to to find, to hear that music on the radio. Also, every now and then you'd hear a song by the Boomtown Rats or something, okay. or or the Police on yeah. on the above ground radio stations. But one day I heard this song that was like just a straight up pop song. Uh, on pr- probably WMMR, which was the little more adventurous. Uh, uh, it wasn't called classic rock back then, but that's that's kind of what they played. Station. And um, so it, it was the song Train in Vain by The Clash. And uh, so my memory is it was in 
maybe November or so of 79. So it might have been a promo. Like it might have been a pre, pre-single pr- promo before the album came out. The album came out in, uh, in England, I think in December of 79 and I think January in, in America of, yeah. of 80. And so that's my first memory of, of hearing them is this song train in vain, which is super out of character for them at, at that point, you know? Um, um, so that, uh, f- fast forward, um, to, to February uh, of 1980 and my dad takes our family on this very unusual tr- f- for us, uh, trip up to New York city to see West side story on Broadway. Um, a matinee. It was a Wednesday. And so, uh, we, we take the train up there. It was, it was a very long process to get up there. Cause we took public transportation the entire way pretty much. Hmm. And, uh, um, we had some time to kill before the show. And my dad and I went into this sheet music store somewhere around Times Square, big store, mainly sheet music, but they had records too. And, they had a copy of London Calling, and I I really wanted it. Uh, I'd wanted it since it came out, but w- where I shopped for records, you know, uh, where I grew up, uh, there was a mall that mm-hmm. was not close at all, maybe half an hour away, and they had London Calling, but it had a parental advisory sticker on it. All the Ooh. copies in this mall. Uh, Basically, for the song uh, 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 "Death or Glory," there's a fairly horrific line in there. But but um, I knew I couldn't really get away with buying that, you know, because my parents would take me to the mall and and they like to check out what I I'd, I'd buy. So, but I find this copy in this in this store in Manhattan that doesn't have the sticker on. So my dad my dad gives me the. It was so cheap. This this record was probably it was a double album. I can't imagine it was more than seven dollars, uh, because they insisted on on a super low price, and you know in the city in these these high volume stores it was even cheaper. So, got the record that day, and I don't remember anything about about West Side Story. All I remember is the trip back on the subway on the train in the car, just pouring over this album cover, having only knowledge of what one song sounded like. And uh, for anyone who, who hasn't seen the the LP packaging, it's, it's got all these amazing photos inside that this great photographer Penny Smith took of The Clash on, on their um, 79 tour of America. Mm-hmm. And so it's all these, little, all these little photos in there and handwritten lyrics. And I, I just was, I just obsessed over over this package for the entire trip and then we finally get home and I put the record on and I listen track by track and and uh I'm still not hearing this song though this song that I heard on the yeah. radio that was so good and, and uh I get to the very end this song called Revolution Rock and I'm like oh well I guess the song isn't on the record this this kind of cool R&B pop song and I, I'm about to take it off and the song starts the song that I was looking for and uh, I was like, oh, my God, it is on this. And then when Train in Vain ended, I just thought, oh, my God, the rest of this album is so good. Like, and so that that was just a very life-changing experience. And, uh, of course, the reason Train in Vain was not listed on the 
on the cover or anywhere on the record is they um, they'd finished the record apparently and they were they'd already torn their gear down in the studio and Mick Jones came in the next day and said I got this song and it was originally going to be for this um, I think NME flexi disc like a free disc that would come in the in the paper but the song was was deemed too good to be just kind of tossed away for that so they ended up putting it on the record but the sleeves had already been printed up so they couldn't they couldn't put it anywhere on there i, th- I think later pressings had a sticker on it that said contains the hit single train in vain but uh yeah. so so that that was my entree in, into the clash and I, I just remember them from there on out for the next several years just being my favorite band just like absolutely my favorite band yeah, I well, the little things that you talked about in there, just even like just thinking about kind of the breadcrumbs you had to do to kind of like figure out punk. Uh, like right. even in my, um, you know, maybe it's not a surprise to, uh, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but I am younger than you, mm-hmm. um, and so even at my age, I feel like it was it was like a detective novel to like figure out anything that was punk, and being that. Essentially, when I when I was growing up, it felt like someone handed me No Effects, someone handed me Social Distortion, and someone handed me Op Ivy, and then they just said, "This is all punk." And then I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> uh, but you know, it was like if you would drive down the road and you would see someone with a mohawk, and you're like, "Who is that person?" And what is that shirt with the flag on it? You know, and it, but that's like what it was, and then you just kind of had to put the pieces together, just like right. you know, kind of think of these things, and eventually it would ding. You kind of would hear it, and then you're like, I don't know what to do with that. I'm interested in it, and then move on with your life. You know, right. <laughs> that's that's yeah. what liking punk was uh, up yeah. until I guess main or nowadays internet was was how it was. So our situations weren't really that much different, and I think the only reason I bought. Less than Jake, Hello Rock View over Misfits, uh, Famous Monsters, right. was because of the parental advisory uh, on on it. Because uh, right. Less than Jake was, I don't know, the, like no idea or something. Um, so it was like, I guess I'll get this because I know I won't have any questions about it. And also, I could hide ska stuff away because my parents just thought it was all Christian. Um, oh wow! <laughs> yeah. Why? Why is that? Because, well, I had some explicitly christian ska bands like one's called five iron frenzy um oh my god <laughs> is it possible i've seen a documentary on this band uh i, I think be i think i think surprise. i had it was yeah. very interesting i'd never heard of them before yeah yeah um so essentially it's like if they heard that sound my dad was essentially like this all just sounds the same to me like ska and so it was then i could just bring whatever ska it could be like mephiscopheles and right. they wouldn't they wouldn't know the difference like because sure. it just was like oh that's that thing and they were christian so this you know really corny music must be christian right, right um so that was super easy to that was like easier to bring in the house than like all um with all that said i i don't know why it was so easy to bring the clash in i feel like i just uh got their first cd at uh the public library and yeah. brought it and that was wow. you know that was more punk that was kind of like you know, but by the time this record came on it, for some reason though, I went from the first record and then somehow just a tape of um, Sandinisti showed up, um, and 
you know, so it was that was just the idea of those kind of breadcrumbs, like, oh, this is the same band as that. Right. You know, but fe- feeling like that, like I, I didn't have as much of a relationship with this record. So, so I don't know. I feel like I've like pay- played catch up with this record. And one of the things that kind of revisiting it um, was just thinking about how long this record is. But, right. you know, like that's like such it's I, I think I say it like every episode. But it's just like thinking about how records really don't feel like they're over like 30, rec- 30 minutes now. Um, and right. this is an hour and five minutes. And, you know, like Sandinisti is, uh, what, like, I don't know, what, like three hours long? I, I don't it's gotta know. It's got to be. Yeah. I think it was 166 minutes. And I was like, I don't really want to do the math there. That's two hours and 40 minutes right. of an album. Um, so I guess from your journey there with London Calling... Do you feel like you viewed yourself as like a punk then, or was it that easy? I guess at that point, no, no, it was all rock um, maybe. Like I didn't get into like punk punk uh, until like that. That led me to you know n- never mind the bollocks and and uh, I'd already I was already into the Ramones, but like that's that's kind of as punk as I got at, at that age. But then eventually, probably eighty eighty one eighty two, I I started to get into like hardcore punk like Black Flag and the Circle Jerks and that sort of thing. So I, I, I never identify as a punk ever, really. But um, <laughs> yeah. but I, I would say, like, if, if people, like, ask what my favorite kind of music is, I'd probably say, oh, I, I love punk, you know, which I do. But I, I never uh, – I, I would never identify as, as that. And, and by that point, by London Calling – you couldn't really call call them a punk band either. Like I, I listened to the whole record in its entirety earlier today for the first time in forever, and I was kind of shocked at how few loud distorted guitars there are on the record. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's only like a couple songs that that are you would say are even like verging on punk. Like uh, no, the first record is is pretty punk, and the second record, Give Him Enough Rope, is. It has that, but uh, you know, because Sandy Perlman produced that, it's it's got that mm-hmm. big rock yeah. sound, but but it's got big guitars. Uh, but that's not really happening on London Calling. It's it's uh, he had discovered this kind of like flanger effect or something that's kind of the the, the secret sound of that record. And um, um, I did want to talk about that. It's it's such an incredibly clean sounding album like I, I i think that's probably my favorite example of of like a record where you can hear every instrument perfectly it's uh, and i think i think that's down to bill price who was the engineer of that and um it just sounds so clean it, it it's it's almost like a like uh, those big star records where they don't sound dated at all they could they could have been made any time really you know because it's it's they're just so crisp and clear and and but but still you know a ton of edge on 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 all the songs really and and that's what that's what's great about that record is it's like it, it doesn't sound tossed off but it sounds like four guys in a, in a room playing together but but recorded so well and and so well mixed um and, and Everybody in the band was at the top of their game at that point. Uh, I remember around the 10th anniversary of, of the album, uh, 
I picked up a a copy of the NME, and and these people were these current music people were talking about London Calling and what it meant to them, and I was really shocked at how poorly people thought of Paul Simonon's bass playing. And wow. I just think his bass playing on that record is incredible. Like, I would so say it's melodic. like the standout to the record. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, I don't know how. I mean, it's it feels more akin to like the specials than totally. Yeah, and I don't yep. feel like anybody would be like, "Oh, that's a horrible bassist." In no, the specials. So, like it's yeah, it's up there with that. You know, right? There's people who who said that Mick kind of taught him taught him the parts to play on the bass, and that might be true. But but it sounds incredible, and, and I was really kind of shocked by how Topper's drumming, like he's 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 playing hard, but he's not playing that hard. Like he's, you can you can definitely tell this guy had a whole life before the Clash, like in terms of his musical vocabulary, you know. Uh, so without him, it. it, it I don't think they could have made any of those records really after after the first one and have them be as great as they are because he was just so good and you know uh there are so many different genres on this record that they that they tackle and you know they they couldn't have done that with with just any drummer when did topper come and join the band i don't because he wasn't like the whole time he wasn't in the very beginning at some point Right. A couple of them got asked to leave. Right. Yeah. Uh, he um, he joined. I think probably I, I would I would venture I guess at sometime around the end of '77 maybe. So he's he's on several songs on the U.S. version of the first record, um, and then he you know he, he's on all of all of uh, give him enough rope and from there on out until cut the crap. But um, um, so. His great quote was, you know, I figured I'd join this band. I didn't really have a lot going on, but I figured I'd make my name in this band for a, little, a couple of years, and then I'd I'd play some real music with with other people, and and <laughs> and that's kind of what happened. In a way, you know, he he gets to London Calling, and there's a lot of real music on that. Like, there's a lot of different styles, and of course, the next record is just that times ten. Um, so thank God they had him when he left and, and, and they got, um, Terry Chimes back. Um, it just wasn't the same at all. Like you could just tell it's like, oh, wow, that's, that's, that's a a different band now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine the band existing or even this album existing without Paul and Topper. I feel like a lot of it, you know, you know, I guess I didn't start with that. That that is that is like a weird critique. I feel like sometimes music writers just, I guess it's they just write something because they have to. They have a deadline. Oh, yeah. It's just like, oh yeah. Why do you even? <laughs> it's like I bet if you ask them now and we're like, I just had to write something. You know, like like when you reread like Pitchfork reviews from like two thousand. You know, it's like if you could kind of find them like you're in like a cop show and you're giving them a summons. Like, but it's like, why did you write this? You know, I don't think they have a good answer. It's just like, yeah. I just had to. It was a Monday, you yeah. know, because, <laughs> but that sticks with you so much. Like, and then I don't know. It's like, why could anyone deny the impact that this record had? Um, 
but did you ever did you ever feel like you were a there there was a you're a sex pistols person or a clash person N- no um I, I i could see that but uh i loved both you know the sex pistols are are, are sort of just almost frozen in one period of time for me like you know that uh they have the one record yeah and yeah. and it's amazing i would say it's probably the greatest sounding rock and roll album of all time in in my book i just think it sounds yeah. phenomenal yeah it does like i feel like i every time i go to revisit it i want to not think that right you know uh but it, it just it sounds really good <laughs> Yeah. You know, like it's just hard to deny that. Like, and I mean, in the same way, even though the musical style is not the same, uh, they're not, but they are still thinking about like what it, it's almost like this introspection of like what is right. rock music, right? Like, how are we going to put our own stamp on it? And like, what is rock music to us? Yeah, is there, but it's the expression of it's completely different. Um, right. you know, what's interesting is both those records recorded at the same studio, London oh, Calling okay. and, and Nevermind the Bullocks, yeah. I did uh I did read something that they really pushed the clash really pushed to have Guy Stevens uh produce yeah. it and uh one of the notes that I made I said Guy Stevens worked with Mott the Hoople um you know so even if I'm like thinking of that so it's like they wanted him for that you know kind of yeah. like that kind of rock sound I feel like Right. And my understanding is that that guy produced a demo or something of a mix previous band. It might have been the London SS, but I'm not sure if that's correct or not. Uh, I think it was some band he might have had with Tony James from Generation X. And so th- there was that connection already, but I don't think they they knew each other that well. But Mick was a like a, a huge Mott fan and would travel with would, would go see them and the story is is that Mott were super cool with their fans and would let them stay in their hotel rooms after shows and 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 the clash ended up doing that also so i i'm sure that was a result of of him being treated so well by uh Ian Hunter and the and those guys um but my my understanding is also that he really did uh, he he had a lot to do with the record but my understanding is that record was produced by Mick and and Bill Price um, yeah, because, yeah. The thing I read too about it is like Guy Stevens at one point like swung a ladder at yeah. someone. So like I think, you know, the record label was even like this guy's a drunk. You know, like don't yeah don't work with right. him. So you know yeah you know uh, people have issues. But but yeah, yeah, I'm I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. But I think he he definitely brought this this vibe to it. There's a story where he 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 pours a, a bottle of wine in into the the piano there which maybe had been the piano that freddie mercury played uh where the champions on because that was also done there um and uh you know that's like a hugely expensive probably steinway piano that that was ruined and had to be dried out and cleaned up and but i'm sure it got them inspired to play a great take so you know what's more important, four thousand dollar piano or this great song that will live forever? You have, I guess, you have to weigh those things. There, I guess, there's like essentially, you could say there's three, co- or there are three covers on this record for a record that's an hour and five minutes. Um, so brand new Cadillac, and then there's uh, Wrong Amboyo. I guess it's, it's more, like, I guess, you like a folk song. 
right. and then the Danny Ray cover, Revolution Rock. Yeah. Um, so it's, I mean, it's kind of interesting to kind of like uh, have that many covers on one record too. Yeah, uh, the the story goes, as far as I know, that uh, the first song recorded was Brand New Cadillac. And Mm -hmm. it it was, I think, just supposed to be a warm-up. And no one thought they would keep it on there. And it just sounded so good that I guess it ended up as the second song on the record, you know, and and kind of became a classic in its own right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I'm sure Revolution Rock was probably something that they were listening to at that point. Yeah, you know, on 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 the jukebox or something, and uh, that's a great take. Oh my god, all, all this incredible percussion in there, and the you know the the horns, just amazing stuff. I, I'd love to know who who arranged all that horn stuff. I want I I don't know who that would have been. I know on later albums it kind of seemed like uh, Topper would do things like that, uh, kind of piano Maybe. and kind of that. I guess musical orchestration that's kind of past the, you know, four piece rock kind of thing. Right. But I, I I didn't get like a sense that this almost feels like, so if he joined, so if he joined the band really right when the first record came out, you could then assume that they had some of the second record already written because of how quick of turnaround. So you would then assume that this was the first record that, that they really probably wrote, structured everything with topper and i guess you have to say that because they didn't come into writing with like when they started writing this record they didn't like have any ideas it was just rehearsals is from what i read right yeah. they would go to this uh place in pimlico called uh called vanilla studios uh which f- fun fact i guess the next year when acdc were auditioning singers that's where brian johnson went to to try out uh, just this rehearsal studio above uh, a garage. And uh, and uh, so my understanding is they would go there every day and they would they would come up with the songs and practice them and go play soccer and then come back and and practice some more. And all the while they had they had uh, one of their roadies Baker uh recording it on, on like a little tape player and, and the story is that uh johnny green the the road manager had had the tapes and left them on the subway somehow and and so they they were lost forever in, in until mick found them probably in maybe 2000 or something in a drawer and that's that's the vanilla tapes that that have surfaced uh in in the re-release that came out maybe around 2003 or something. There was a great repackage of it and it had, it had the demos in it. And it's really interesting to hear the demos of the songs. Cause they're, they're kind of similar. Like the songs, you could definitely tell them, tell that it's the same songs. Like a lot of times you'll hear a demo of something. And it's like, Oh, there's like this one kernel that actually made it onto the record. And the rest of the song is just this thing you never heard before. But yeah, but the songs were pretty formed at that point, which is pr- pretty cool. Yeah. That's always a weird thing thought for me um i feel like when i'm like writing songs like and it's brought to a band there's not so much like a discussion of like but you hear those kind of rock stories where it's like billy joel and it's like oh this started as a reggae song and someone told me to speed it up like i guess i haven't had much of that experience so so it almost doesn't surprise me but you hear those kind of rock stories of things kind of like evolving immensely from you know one kind of version to the other yeah. Um, but 
I guess back to something you were mentioning, like when you were talking about ACDC, um, do you feel like when you were discovering the clash, it was just kind of like a pot of all these rock bands? Like there wasn't, did you have like any reason like this was this or this was that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's funny because that, that was like a, a, a fork in the road for my friends and I, um, I was getting really into this stuff, Ramones and the Clash and uh, and the Police and the Pretenders and that sort of thing. And my friends kind of weren't like they didn't really get it. And they were it, it was also like a whatever, a cultural fork in the road too. where yeah. they were they were getting into pills and stuff, pills and harder yeah. drugs other than pot. And I, that wasn't for me. And so I just, I, I feel like in a way I was saved by this music. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. where I would have ended up had I not kind of whatever gone, gone punk or gone new wave. Um, so, but to answer your question, yeah, huge, huge difference between the stuff I liked and ACDC and Van Halen. And it was very tribal back then. And I, I really didn't know too many people who were into the kind of music I liked in, in high school. There was a, a few, but not many. Uh, um, and I, I think that's why I still kind of hold a grudge against a lot of that. Whatever, like, uh, Miss Towny rock is, I feel like what people call it, but yeah. I, you know, I feel like I know what people mean when yeah. they say that, but I, you know, like metal, like, uh, yeah, yeah. Like I, I never got into Ozzy Osbourne or black Sabbath or any of that stuff just because I, because the people that were, they were into it in my school. I thought were assholes, dumb assholes. So I, I, uh, I still kind of harbor, harbor that grudge, which is really stupid. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like uh, kind of some of the exercise, actually, I'm going to drop something in the chat and we'll talk about it after I mention yeah. this. Um, so one of my friends, um, you may know him, uh, Perry Shaw. Yeah. He wanted to ask you if you were at the specific class show. Um, but before I just dropped in there, but what I wanted to mention too was I feel like starting this podcast was also my thing. Like, it's like, I don't want to like split things or kind of like, I want to completely divorce myself from the idea of like being punk. And if someone tells me they want to listen to a pop record, I want to try and listen to it with like open mind as possible, (laughs) you know? And so it's like to really just like appreciate something for like where it lives, you know? Um, so, so yeah, I feel like I have, I harbor resentments, but I think my resentments sometimes went the other way, uh, almost despite my brother. Uh, cause my brother was really into things like, uh, just like any of this, uh, punk, like exploited and all that. And I listened to it, but the exploited was almost like the dropping off point. I was like, I don't know if I like this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then I, then I purposefully got into a lot of like hair bands, um, just kind of like when it was cheap. But two, it was like just despite my brother, and that sure. led me into liking <laughs> things like Ozzy Osbourne. It's like a reversal, and then, yeah. Yeah, great. and then I kind of just went back the other way, eventually. But yeah, so it accidentally made me more open-minded to two. But then I'm all, I, I I get the feeling of like being torn. Um, right. Yeah. But I don't I don't think that really exists today, which is probably yeah, ultimately a, a great thing. Like, there's no, like I for the longest time I was hearing these these bands that that were considered hip that to me just sounded like a flock of seagulls or, or mm-hmm. the fix like yeah. recent bands. A- and I just thought, well, that's kind of cool because there's these, the kids who are making these records have no baggage. There's no baggage like to like, uh, what, or, 
or like with kind of yacht rock stuff. To me, that was the uncoolest thing ever when it was happening. Like all of it was just so. If you told me one day this would be like kind of cool, I would never have believed you. But it's it's great that kids today have don't really have that baggage. That they they didn't grow up with this, you know, the uh, whatever the chasm between all these all these genres. So it's. It's just kind of all music now, which ultimately I think is 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 great. Yeah, I remember I like some of my older friends. Like I feel like if it comes up, like I feel like I liked Wallflowers and Everclear growing up. But right. anyone that's like five or ten years older than me, they had a different relationship, and they're like, no. Sure. Yeah, but I I didn't have that relationship with it, so yeah. I'm like, well, it was on the radio, and a lot of my friends liked it. You know, like it. Yeah. You know, it hits me in a way that makes me happy. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, that kind of thing. Like, you have a different relationship. So, it's mm -hmm. like, you know, and then I, it's like when I see people, like, they're mad about, like, Blink-182, you know, and I'm like. Right. But that was, like, my thing, you know, if they're slightly older than me. So, yeah. I, I get that it's the same thing. You could, I could keep pushing it down the road. And I assume, right. you know, some kid that's 20 now, when they get my age. They'll have, they'll probably have something, or maybe it's completely gone, and that'd be nice. You know, they gotta have it's, it about something. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I think it's all context. Mike Mike Watt has this great quote that's something like, "Nobody should be penalized for when they were born." Yeah. You know, which is true. It's like I I can't expect someone, you know, who's eighteen years old today to like London Calling, it would be like asking me, you know, at the, at that age to like, whatever, uh, you know, like a uh, Sammy Khan song or something. You're like, yeah, oh, like, I think I, I've said like it. I feel like I've said it on song or something. Yeah, I feel like I've said it on other episodes. Like, it'd be like liking Big Bopper. You know? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's like I have no relationship to to it. No, you know, uh, I didn't know. I don't know what that is. It, it sounds right. like something that's fake to me. Um, <laughs> you know, like uh, or even like. Fat, I mean, Fats Domino is kind of the same thing. Like, I mean, it is good, but you know, I wouldn't be, ex I shouldn't be expected to be like, man, you don't like Fats Domino? Like, why yeah. would that be something that I would, you know, have come around to? But my my friend Perry, um, he has this shirt, and he was his question was, were you here? So there was a, September twenty fifth, nineteen eighty two, The Who, with The Clash, and then under The Clash is Santana. As well, I I had a ticket to it, okay, and it was it was canceled. Here's oh. here's the story. I um, I m my friend Matt Thorne and I bought, got tickets for it. Basically, it was supposed to be two shows at at JFK Stadium, and the first show was going to be The Who and The Clash and someone else, and the second one was going to be The Who and Santana, and I guess. Maybe they overestimated how many tickets they could sell because that that place held ninety thousand people. Um, so the first show that I had tickets to got canceled, and I get and they folded them all those bands in together and they added hometown heroes, the Hooters, also at the at the beginning. Oh the, yeah, at the start of the day. Um, and I I talked to the drummer of the Hooters recently. Uh, I did an interview on his podcast and he said it was a really fun day. He said they met the Clash and. Paul, Paul was especially nice to them. Okay. I think uh, I remember hearing you talk about the Hooters on Turned Out a Punk. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah, so, uh, yeah. so that's that's funny that um, it comes back to the Hooters. Those yes. like hometown heroes too. Like sometimes as as 
as unsuccessful as I feel like my musical career has been, I always like imagine that if there's at least a book and there's a footnote and then it sort of explains at the very bottom of the page like who my band was, right? That's not so bad. It's great. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. pretty cool. Like the fact yeah. that you're mentioning the Hooters this right. far along. Right. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love uh, it. Uh I, I only saw The Clash once. I, I saw them in 82. Um, it was the summer of 82 in uh, in Philly. The, it was probably the, probably the only big general admission venue they could find. It, 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 was, it was called the Penn Skating Rink. And it still exists. It's right down the street from WXPN in West Philly. And uh, they played two nights there. And uh, I think I went the first night and burning spear opened and there was some some crazy thing where i remember getting there and burning spear was setting up all their gear and then they took it down and then they put it all back up so like you're just standing you know when you're a kid you could stand for 10 hours yeah and and i and 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 we did stand for 10 hours that day and they eventually played and the clash played and they were great but i'll tell you i saw joe strummer solo on the earthquake weather tour at the palladium where the front cover photo for London calling was taken, mm-hmm. uh, 80, 89, I think November of 89 better than the clash. Oh, wow. I was shocked. It, it was, uh, it was him, Xander Schloss, uh, from the circle jerks. He, okay. he played guitar, uh, Jack Irons, who went on to be in Pearl jam on drums. who was incredible. Mm-hmm. And this guy named Lonnie Marshall, only guy I've ever pl- seen play a a Steinberger bass, you know those basses with no headstock, or yeah, and look and look great playing it. Oh, so he didn't look like Phil Lash playing it. No, no, he looked so great. And yeah. uh, Joe played Clash songs, but they were only songs that 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 were covers. So, brand new Cadillac. Okay. Uh, Police and Thieves. Um. What else would he have done? Um, I just now, re- I didn't realize that Police and Thieves was a cover until this very moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Junior Mervin. Uh, okay. Uh, so, uh, and a couple other songs. I can't remember what they would have been, though. Um, and I, I don't remember him really doing any Clash originals, though, mm-hmm. which was interesting. He did a big Audio Dynamite cover. Okay. Which is crazy, yeah. That is pretty. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask kind of like what your relationship with Big Audio, big audio Dynamite. I feel like I have to like take a second to enunciate everything when i say that band name right um, <laughs> um i i didn't have one really i i remember when when that record came out i was sort of really over the clash at that point you know like mm-hmm. they were kind of uh, cu- uh cut the crap had come out and that was just terrible and uh and i remember they they did a tour too uh i think before cut the crap came out as the five piece and i was over it by then too and, and he just seemed very angry to joe and and he was you find out later that his his parents were dying, and so he was just a pretty, you know, sad, upset, a- angry man at that point. And uh, but it definitely came across in in his public persona. So I I didn't really have any connection to either of those guys at that point. I I liked uh, there are a couple later Big Audio Dynamite songs I liked, like uh, what's it called Rush? A song called Rush. Uh, Come on, every beatbox. Um. I think Rush had the Babbo O'Reilly sample in it, which was really cool. Oh, okay. um, but 
but that's it really I, I never had any interest in seeing them or anything like that but but Joe by himself that tour that show was just that's still in, I think in the top five shows I've ever seen of anybody oh wow uh, was yeah. that just billed as Joe Strummer yeah because yeah. that was pre Mescaleros yeah. um... yes uh, and he had he had a band just before that called the the Latino Rockabilly War okay uh, but my memory is it was in that in-between space, so it was just Joe Strummer. Since you mentioned the Bob O'Reilly thing, and I, I didn't want to take it to your bands this early, but I feel like I'll forget. Um, so there is a specific Super Chunk song, and at the end of it, uh-huh. um, Marion Brown, I think, is the name of the song, and it yeah. feels like you all go into uh, Bob O'Reilly in a way. Well, was that this purposeful? The, the, the story of that song is is that uh, it was during that stretch where we were all kind of bringing in song ideas. Now we make records and, and Mac pretty much writes the songs and we come up with our own, own little parts and contribute, but but they're pretty much written. Uh, but but between, um, God, what would it be? Between a record called Here's Where the Strings Come In, which came out in 95, and um, Here's to Shutting Up, which... Uh, I think it was announced today. The uh, 20th anniversary reissue comes out in October. Yeah, look, we're promoting. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so we were coming up with songs for that record, uh, "Indoor Living," which Marion song for Marion Brown is on, and Laura brought this song in, and it was basically the Bab O'Reilly riff. <laughs> yeah. Bam, bam. And yeah. she never, she never heard Bab yeah. O'Reilly, and so. Or sometimes it just think, happens. I mean. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So. The working title of this song was Baba O Really? <laughs> yeah. So uh, so that's you're very uh you're very correct in in your uh Okay. Yeah. Placement I, I, I of, thought the, of the origin. Being that, you know, kind of the just the humor that comes out in y'all's band, um it, it felt like I was like if anyone did that on purpose or as a nod, it would be you all. You right. know. So I'm glad I'm really glad to hear that. Because I feel yeah. like I played it to a, for a friend one time. They're like, I don't see it. And I'm like, how do you <laughs> yeah, not I'm, see I'm it? Sh- <laughs> like, yeah. um, but a thing that I like to do on this podcast, uh, what if you were to cut one song from this album um, that we haven't really gone through all the tracks for, but there's all a right. lot of tracks on here, what would you cut? I have a pick, but I, I'd like to hear what you say. All right, I'm pulling up the wiki to look at the uh, track listing. I think I know what I'm what I'm thinking already here. Uh, all right, the ones I, I I routinely skip. Okay, good. Um, and I know this is sacrilege. I've never loved the Guns of Brixton. I think it's a gr- I think it's a great. I think it's great though. Um, the card sheet. Um, the card sheet and. Or the card sheet is my is my, my my if I had to pick only one it's that I never loved Four Horsemen. Okay, I was since you did multiple, I was like I hope you pick one of the ones I am, but I will say track three, Jimmy Jazz. I would cut. I hear you. <laughs> um, well, you know it's interesting the the placement of that song is is really interesting. Like that that's the number three song. Mm-hmm. Because it's so out of character, but they did play it live. I was kind of surprised okay. that you know that, that they did actually try that one. But there's like there's several on this record that they, as far as I know, they never played. Like most of most aside for uh, 
Death or Glory, I don't think, got played much, if ever. Oh, wow. That's that's yeah. surprising for me. Because um, the songs that I wrote, um, I wrote songs that I really, really like. Like, I feel like they just pop in my head. Um, are Lost in the Supermarket, mm-hmm. and then right into the Clampdown, I think, is like oh, yeah. the best two tracks together on the record yeah. for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just the one-two punch of that. And then I said, you know, Death or Glory was another really strong song, and I'm not down. Those are great. Yeah. yeah. Um, because it's kind of like, oh, you know, when a record's kind of long, or really I should say over 30 minutes, I start kind of going like, what would I cut? You know? Right. Um, and so that's really the whole exercise of it. Um, but, yeah, I think with, like, Jimmy Jazz, uh, it's sort of like what it's doing, I feel like something like Rudy Can't Fail or other places on the record, like, do it a lot better. Right. Uh, is, I hear you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> sorry. Um, sorry, The Clash. Right. I <laughs> I guess I like that song because it, it's like, it shows how musical they could be, you know, and... Um, yeah, that's like a, just like a straight up kind of swinging kind of number. And, it does um, plant a flag, like it's saying this is yeah. what we're gonna do. So I appreciate right. its boldness um, in that. You know, right? There's a there's a story of Joe Strummer uh, talking to like an English. Uh, I'm sorry, a, a German punk when they were touring for the record, mm. and and the guy says, "I hate this album. My my grandmother likes it," and, and I. <laughs> I can't imagine that's not the song that she liked. Yeah. Jimmy Jazz. Uh, I, the whole, <laughs> that whole, um, I guess I'll say bit of the way Germans respond to things. Oh, it's terrible. To, I mean, it's, <laughs> it also feels like if this was their experience <laughs> at this time, have has that kind of culture not, <laughs> have they not caught up to the fact of like being self-aware around it? You know, you like know, that it's, that it's still a thing. Right. Your new album is very terrible, and uh, I don't know why you you made such a bad record, but, like, you you get that in interviews. It's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're saying this to my face. Like, you're just, you have no idea how this comes across. But but you're you're being honest, which ultimately is pretty great, I guess, but it's the way, I remember uh, uh, <laughs> John Darnell has a great one of, uh, you know, there was a woman that played bass in the Mountain Goats at first. So it was basically John and, the, and this woman. And uh, and I guess they did some European tours. And uh, and so they come back, back and it's John and Peter at this point, Peter mm-hmm. Hughes. And the uh, guy comes right up to John at the, at the merch table. That is the girl. <laughs> Where's the girl? <sighs> that, uh, <laughs> it's like I... I like we had before COVID happened, like we had a European tour scheduled and everything. And I felt like I was wor- a lot of it was Germany. And I was very worried about just that. Like we had so many shows in Germany that I was just like, I'm going to be hit with this every night. You Can know? I ask what time of year this would, was going to be? Uh, June, I believe. Oh, that's like not June bad. and that's July. Not bad. Okay. That's not yeah. Bad. That's actually pretty good. Okay. Do you think they're nicer at that time of year? I'm just saying the weather. Uh, you, okay. You have you don't know depression until you've <laughs> tour. You've done a five week European tour in January. Yeah. It's the absolute worst. Mm. One yeah. of the things one of my friends told me like when they were on tour in Germany, it was like they said, "You sounded terrible tonight. I'll take two copies." So they're like, "I mean, you bought something, so." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I, well, another funny show story and it involves you. I think I already told you about this, but for the sake of the pod, um, I saw Super Chunk at an outdoor event in Durham. And uh, it was like the customary kind of like you go up and you're like, hey, good set, you know, kind of thing. So we went up and I think we were like getting a picture with you or something. And then this guy comes up as we're getting a picture or chatting, whatever. And he just takes a picture of you. And then you <laughs> you look at you look at him and not like in a mean way or anything. You're like, would you like to get a picture with me? <laughs> And it's it's the it's the funniest thing to me. And then the guy was it like surprised the guy, took the guy aback. It felt like right. um, that that was an option for him, you know. But just the thought of like essentially someone you like just kind of going up to them, like I guess let's say you go up to a celebrity and you're just like, oh, uh, Brian Cranston, and let me snap a picture of you or whoever, right. and then you're like, and then walk away. You know that was essentially right. the exchange. <laughs> Very odd. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we we did a uh, a variation of that on the on the best show once where I called in as a guy who had just photo albums full of photos of himself that were taken by famous people. He he would just go up to someone and, and ask a famous person just to take a photo of him. So you would have no knowledge who took the photo at all. <laughs> That's not far off. Right. Like I think it would be if 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 this if that uh, if that guy had a similar photo album, it's still just like a picture of people that he admires in a book, and that's you're like, right. I think I'm gonna go now. Uh, yeah. He's know. not connected to the photo at all, other than having yeah. taken it. Yeah, it seems like you would want because I could just be like, hey, uh, go and pull up a picture of John Worcester, and then that's really the same thing he did. Same deal. Like it's like, but you would you the natural inclination is, this is me with John Worcester. Right. You know, I don't. I don't think I even have to explain that. That's how normal I don't get it. So, yeah. social interactions really work. <laughs> um, you know. So, and also just to say, um, I'll say thank you because when I was in Japan, I guess 2019, um, you all let me and my wife come to the show. Uh, yes! We were traveling at the same time. That was me. I remember that. Oh my yeah. god! Wow! I totally remember that. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that was a fun trip. That that was a fun trip. Yeah, it was a really great show, and it was uh, very packed at the Tokyo show. Um, I mean, yes. you wouldn't know that because you were on stage. Uh, but it was like, I guess the kind of standing room laws are different in Japan because mm -hmm. it was like, it would be like my chest and someone's back, it felt like, in the venue. Right. Yeah. But very great yeah. show. <laughs> that, that, that was a fun one. I, I remember... Uh... The Melvins were playing somewhere that night, and Steve McDonald came came over to the to to see us afterwards, and uh, we uh, saw them at the airport the next morning, which is always always odd seeing fellow American rockers in such far away yeah. places. Yeah, we were. It was like after the show, and I felt because it was a nice thing that you all allowed. I was like, I I guess I should wait and say thank you in person, but then um, my wife was like, Do you? Do I don't know. We would just be standing here for however long, and then right, sure. You know, it's always like, weird. Yeah, yeah just kind of let's let's go. You know. Yeah. So I'm thanking you now for it since I didn't get oh, to. Um, I guess is there are there more kind of parts of the album? I guess if you had other things you wanted to mention, I I, I have a, a, 
a horror story invo- involving where uh, where it was recorded. I, oh, yes. I don't know if you've, if you've heard no. this story or not, but it's it's terrible. It's uh, so in uh, gosh, two thousand and three, I think, um, or four. I was playing with this this band from Philadelphia called Mara M A R A H, and uh, kind of a roots rock band. Uh, Bruce Springsteen had taken them under his wing and championed them at the time, and um, as had Steve Earle. And so we uh, were over in England, and we were going to do a tour there, and we flew over, and, you know, you want to stay up that first day so you don't go to sleep at, like, 4 in the afternoon and and then wake up at midnight wide awake. And then you're fucked. So I thought, I'm going to go and, and try to find Wessex Studio where London Calling and the first Pretenders record and never mind the bollocks and uh, a whole bunch of other albums were done. And so I, I went to like an internet cafe and got online and found the address. And it took me forever to find it. Really uh, kind of secluded. And so I, I get... Uh, I get like close to it and I realize, oh my God, this has to be it. It's like an old church and there's a, there's a, a school ground next to it, elementary school. And I, and I remembered in this documentary on Nevermind the Bollocks where Johnny Rotten says, uh, we would come to the studio every day and these children who were on the playground would make fun of us. And we kind of joke with these kids. And so I'm thinking that has to be it. So I get closer. I go down this little pathway between the studio on one side and this playground on the other. And I'm taking photos with my digital camera of, of the studio and, and it's being, it's being kind of refurbished. So there's all kind of scaffolding up. It doesn't look great, but it's, it's still the studio. And these children are just, are just kind of like calling to me. What are you doing? What? And I said, oh, I'm taking photos of this place. Why? Well, it's this famous studio. Why? And I was kind of like, please leave me alone. And then finally one one kid goes, hey, take a picture of me. So I just turn around and I go, take a picture. And I, and I keep taking photos of the studio and walking down the alley to get another angle. As I'm walking up, back up, these two police people grab me and throw me against the wall. Uh, a, a man and a woman. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And the guy on my deathbed, I'll hear this guy's voice saying, taking pictures of little kids, are we? And I, it was the most scared I've ever been in my life to this day. Because on and paper, remember, you were. Like yes. There's, a, there's yeah. like undeniably you were doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I guess a neighbor saw this and, call, and called it in. And I just remember like being up against this wall and just thinking, I think my life is over. Yeah. And, and, and thank God, like I told them exactly what I was doing. And I, I had a digital camera. If I'd had a film camera, they would have taken me down to the station, processed the film. And, you know, then they would let me go. But but so he was able to scroll through. It would have been a longer process. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he scrolls through and just goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. So <laughs> but but for like, whatever, seven minutes. Yeah. My life, I thought my life was over. Oh my God. So frightening. And I just, and he goes, you know, he let me go and just like, sorry about that. And, and I just remember just being in shock for the rest of the day. Yeah. 
Uh, my my wife and I have been uh, we work remotely uh, for the most part, and we've been just we'll put on SVU during the work day. So I felt like this became like an SVU episode, right? Uh, like it was just you know, and then it will get cleared up. But the, you know, it was like yeah, it'd yeah. be a long process to get there. Oh my um, thinking about I guess like one of the other songs on the record that kind of led me in something with you. Um, so the song right profile. Um, so just like thinking about the band, right profile, Mm -hmm. uh, and kind of that journey, I I know it's like pretty well documented with like with Dubner, uh, Steven, is that, that's his name? Yes. Yeah. And just like, I'm not sure what my question is here, but, but it's, I assume that's just a one-to-one direct correlation with that specific song was the reason of naming the band. <laughs> yeah, my understanding is, uh, for, for those listening who, who don't know, I, I, jo- I joined this band in 1986. Uh, uh, I, I moved down to Winston-Salem, North Carolina from outside of Philly where I was playing. In, in the great band Psychotic Norman, uh, um... And so I, I ended up auditioning for this band in Winston-Salem called The Right Profile. And I got in the band and we ended up getting this record deal with Clive Davis at Arista. And it immediately went to shit. But, uh, but uh, yes, they were called The Right Profile. And my understanding is they were, they were, uh, they had a, a band at ASU, Appalachian State in uh, Western North Carolina. And uh, they were playing some sort of, school-sponsored gig or something and they needed a name and that was the name that that they decided on and uh which is odd because the band was like a roots rock band like a almost like a pop kind of roots band so there not a lot of punk in there but so it was it was kind of a a misleading name for them but that's definitely where the name came from and then it's, it's interesting rem uh eventually had a song about montgomery clift also uh called monty got a, a raw deal um, and I, I can't say I've really heard heard that song, but I, I wonder if it deals with the same deals with yeah. his career the, the same way the song "The Right Profile" deals with Montgomery Clips. Yeah, um, there's there's a uh, book by a North Carolina writer, Mark Kemp. Um, he wrote this book called Dixie Lullaby, and it goes through a lot of that kind of era of Right Profile and like Jason and the Scorchers. Um, you know, kind of the bridge, I guess, from growing up like classic rock. And right. then getting into punk in its kind of early form. So, you know, I, I feel like that's where I knew Right Profile from and that kind of journey um, right. with it. So very very unique kind of era, it's like snapshot in time that I guess it kind of goes along with uh, somehow with like Stray Cats. And I can't ever figure out like what that scene was trying to do. And I like a lot of the music. It's just trying to think about it as a snapshot in time. That roots right. kind of era, yeah. Was... It was it, it was an interesting time because, uh, yeah, it it, it was kind of like a a mix of God. How would you even describe it? I guess Jason the Scorchers is probably the best example that I can think of, where there was this direct line from country music, but also punk rock in there also because there they, they, these were young guys doing it you know and uh so it, it certainly wasn't a genre that's that sold many records like 
none of those bands sold a lot of I records. I think people expected it to because of, like, I guess you could throw, like, Blasters in there and you could throw uh, kind of mid-era L- X, and yeah. that's why they were kind of betting their futures on it. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, yeah, I don't... Long, long Riders and uh, uh, there was a band called Walk the West that were on Capitol Records, and, yeah, I think it probably looked good on paper and people were excited about it. Del Fuego's had, had a... yeah. A little yeah. bit of that, and uh, but yeah, no one really took off. Yeah, this thing I the thing I read about the right profile story, like it feels like so the kind of the Tom Petty story where they kind of go, you know, if we want to if we want this to really happen, we have to go from Gainesville, Florida, out to L.A. and then that worked for Tom Petty, but yeah. <laughs> for right profiles, like the situation was almost the same in a way, but it didn't work out in the same way you know right we we ended up moving to northern new jersey right across the river from manhattan right uh a town called cliffside park new jersey and uh who knows why to just to, to be closer to the, our manager and our record label but we really didn't do much up there like we didn't really practice or 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 play many shows maybe just a handful of shows we, we opened a big show for lone justice in at, at the Ritz in Manhattan, and then we opened for Mick Taylor for the from the Stones maybe the next nights in, in Asbury Park. But that was pretty much it. We didn't really do much for some reason. We had it in our head that we needed to be up there, but it was kind of a waste of time, and um, not much got done. And then we ended finally. Clive Davis gave us the go ahead to start making a record with Jim Dickinson uh, at Arden in Memphis, and so. Uh, he had just done Please to Meet Me by the Replacements, who, who are our managers also managed. And um, he was great. It was a really fun time and learned a lot from him. And we only got halfway into the record and we kind of bailed on it. It wasn't sounding great. but um, And that's kind of where it died. Yeah. And I feel like yeah. I've heard right profile songs, but I don't know like what what they were on. Like I've heard songs. Well, but nothing really a... came out. Uh, the, there was a single that came out before okay. I joined, yeah, uh, which was not indicative of the band sound at all. It was very kind of pop. It was recorded by Mitch Easter at the drive-in. Um, and we never played any of those songs really live. Um, so it's just kind of this weirdly undocumented thing. It, it, it was documented. Like it, it, We did tons of demos. That's that's the thing about being on a major label, at least back then, was you just had to keep doing these demos until you were deemed ready to, to have an album's worth of good songs. Uh, so we did all these all these demo sessions. We actually did one demo session at, uh, at the studio where Walk Among Us by The Misfits was recorded. So that was exciting in uh, B- Boonton, New Jersey. That's the name of the town. And, uh, but, uh, so w- we did record a lot of stuff, but there's just no, it just never got out there because it ne- we never actually finished a record. And I think enough time went by and we just thought, well, who cares at this point? But we did get back yeah. together, uh, a few mm-hmm. years ago to, to play a show, which was really fun. I, I'm kind of surprised in a way, you know, with you and then with, uh, Steven, uh, that there hasn't been like a, numero group or like what light in the attic kind of thing where where numero group i guess would be more appropriate somehow it gets yeah. unearthed and someone sends them tapes or you know there's a drawer like we were talking about with the clash right. and i'm surprised it hasn't happened 
I, I wonder if that's down to just who owns the masters, you know, who, who actually owns the, those recordings. Does Arista still own them or cause they let us go with a pretty, a pretty substantial debt, which was nice of them. But, uh, um, I assume they might still own it. Yeah, there was a because I know you've toured with them in the early days of Super Chunk, but there was a time frame where it was like, um, I don't know why I'm forgetting. Oh, Span Away by Seaweed. Yeah. Uh, it's on Hollywood Records, and for the longest time, it wasn't on any streaming, and it hasn't been repressed. Uh, it feels like oh. another another band that's kind of time forgotten certain circles. Um, right. But it's like I got to the point where I emailed Hollywood Records, and I was like can I reissue this? Like I have a small label. Essentially my plan was if I get in contact with them, then I would send it to someone that's more capable of doing it. And they were like, that's not, they're not on our label. And then essentially I had to do a back and forth for a few months and then provided them proof that seaweed was on Hollywood records. (laughs) And then they're like, let's get, let me get you to another department. And then it was like, then it just kind of stalled from there, but it was like sure. they didn't even believe me Amazing. that they were that they were yeah you know on the label. Uh, wow! So oh my god! So yeah, and uh, one other uh, kind of tidbit, and I, I assume it's probably been covered a lot. Uh, doing the research on you, I guess it. So is it true that you booked Dead Milkman's first show? I I think that's. I think that's true. Yes. Um, basically, uh, I knew Dean, the drummer, uh, when I was in high school and, uh, he had, he had a band. It was, it was a duo, uh, uh, guitar and drums called Narthex and and a Narthex, I I think is the front area of of a church. Like that's, that's, that's where the name came from. Very odd name, but, but, uh, uh, so Narthex would play with the band I played in hair club for men. Uh, in, in these, you know, local VFWs and hall shows that we would put on. And, um, so then he, he joins this, these guys and they form this band called the Dead Milkmen. So this is, this is like, uh, I would say summer of 83, maybe, I think. And, um, so the bass player for Hair Club for Men was like at least 12 years older than, than me. So he, he, uh. I can't remember whose idea it was, but one of us came up with the idea of, oh, you know, there's this senior citizens activity center in, in town. I, 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 I lived in Harleysville, PA. That's where I lived. And, uh, and so maybe they'll rent out the upstairs and we could have a show there. And so the older guy in hair club for men actually did the, whatever the money or sign sign for it. But uh, yeah, so he and I basically p- promoted this, show and and i can't i can't i can't believe there were more than 20 people at this thing and i think there were probably 10 of my friends and 10 people the dead milkman brought with them and and that was it and it it was super fun and uh it's funny this i did an interview with mark mark hoppus a couple weeks ago and we talked about it too. I just can't believe that that this is still of interest, or, or that, that it's even out there. It's so funny. Yeah, yeah. I I, I didn't even realize because it's like you don't think about the lyric in terms of like real people. You know, this song Stewart off of Belzebubba. Uh, you know the Johnny Worcester kid, the kid that delivers papers in the neighborhood. He's a fine kid. Some of the neighbors say he smokes crack, but I don't believe it. 
is a lyric. And I don't think I ever put it in my brain that that was about a real person, because why would I? Right, yeah. <laughs> but that's you, as you know. Some, sometimes, some, sometimes I'll talk to someone and they'll go, you have the same name as this, as this line in this dead milkman. And I'm like, well, how many? They're, they're, I've never met a John Worcester other than me. Yeah, you know, it's, it's very, very. Uh, who else? Who else could it be? I guess. But, but, um, I remember the the day I bought that out. I bought that album. I was living in Winston Salem, and uh, I put it on, and I could not. I was shocked to hear him. I had no idea it was coming, at all. Um, and I remember, yeah, this is this is pre everything. So I, I remember writing Rodney a, 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 like a postcard saying, "Oh my God, I can't believe this." And yeah, so uh, uh, similarly, and this is making me sound like a really big Lesson Jake fan. Um, but there was a surfing magazine, I think it was like Juice or something in the nineties. And, um, I was like a seventh, it was like in like seventh grade. And they say, they say something about a friend that they grew up with. And, um, they say this guy, Mike, I think his name was, if I'm remembering correctly, Mike Sapowitz. And, uh, they were like, yeah, he was a friend. We lost touch with him. That's what the song is about. So I'm like, that, is that my math teacher? Yeah. And so I, I knew somehow that he, um, which confused me at the time, but he also worked at this pizza shop, which makes a lot of sense. Now a teacher would have to have a second job yeah. but at the time. Yeah. I was like, why, what's going on? Um, so I call the pizza shop in seventh <laughs> grade and then I'm like, is Mike there? And he comes to the phone and I explain to him like, Hey, I was reading this interview. Um, are you the Mike that Les and Jake are talking about? Uh, and he was like, yes, uh, please never call here again. Ah! <laughs> and was, yeah. Wow. So, yes, like how small the world right. was That's crazy. those kind of things. Um, it's like that I Rancid guess, song where he goes, uh, took this up the bus, ah, da, 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 da. Ben Zanato, he was waiting. The, this guy, Ben Zanato, has, has been, you know, is in, so the, he's, he's out he's in the history somewhere. books now. Yeah, who knows <laughs> where he is or who he is. Do we have anything else we would want to say to the Clash? The story goes that uh, when Mick Jones was singing his vocal for Train in Vain on that last day, he was looking at Chrissy Hind, who was in, who was like in the studio through a window, maybe like on the next floor up. So that's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I, think I love stuff brilliant. like that. Yeah, I love I stuff love like that, too. Like that. Um, I think that's really great. Um, I guess today is also, what, the last Conan O'Brien show? Yes. Mm -hmm. And just, I mean, personally, Conan O'Brien has had a huge impact on my life. Like, mm. I, it's like at a, the point I discovered I didn't know kind of like TV could be that way. Right. You know, uh, yeah. And even thinking about like, I think a lot about like the writer strike um, and when they didn't have writers and they did the uh, Walker, Texas Ranger uh, lever. So essentially when their joke was doing oh, badly, right. they yeah. would pull it. So it was just like yeah. just continually pulling it. So I know you've yeah. had like a big relationship with, you know, Conan O'Brien. So it's just something that's like I've thought about today, you know. Yeah, it's funny. I, I I was trying to find a, a still from uh, from this sketch I was in. Uh, uh, long story short, the, the, there was a writer there for years named Brian Stack, who's still a friend, and he's great. He writes for Colbert now. But uh, he had this idea that I would be good in this sketch, and so this is two thousand and 
maybe 2001, the summer, maybe. And, and uh, or 2000. And yeah, it was 2000. And um, so he came to a Super Chunk show at Brownies that we were doing and uh, asked me if I would be in this sketch. And I was I was kind of terrified. But but like I said, I, I got to do it. And like uh, s- someone sent me a clip from it just about an hour ago. And uh, I hadn't seen it in forever. So it was like the first time I'd ever really acted. And I had like a lot of exchanges with him in this sketch. Basically, the the, the gist was I was uh, they come back from commercial and I'm behind the drums and I'm dressed as Max uh, suit and tie. And and we get in this exchange about like, who, who are you? And it turns out I'm this uh, uh security guy who has been hired to stand in for Max because he's been getting these death threats. And then <laughs> I end up getting, I, a, a succession of us end up getting shot <laughs> off the drum stool. Like I get shot. This guy, Michael Delaney, who was a great uh, improv guy. He gets up, he gets shot. Another guy. And it turned out Max is the one who was calling in his own death threats just, just for PR, just like to keep his name out there. Yeah. So uh, that was a joke, but <laughs> But then throughout the years, I, I got in other sketches, and it was always fun just to see how they do it, you know. And, and you're just kind of there for the whole day, and and uh, it, it was always a fun, a fun thing. And and Super Chunk played on on the show the first season, okay, ninety ninety four. Yep. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like that kind of instance right there is what kind of almost like maybe opened the door to comedy type things that you do now with you know like Best Show and the like uh, was that kind of an introduction in a way oh for you? yeah yeah more than but, like i but, guess music videos that super chunk did because a lot of those have like you know right like mr show people are on were in a lot of those videos and whatnot too which is always like a big connection for me yeah i i think that conan sketch was was like it was just a real confidence booster for me because i had no idea i could do anything like that and i remember taking the 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 train into the city that that day and just thinking, I'm either going to do well in this and it's going to maybe be like a whole new chapter in my life, or I'm going to bomb tremendously and I'm going to be a monk. <laughs> and like, like those were the or two at, options. Or at and, the very, <laughs> um, if it's not as bad, I guess I'll keep being a drummer. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about it, that. I but, think uh, it wouldn't have been so bad, you know, but yeah. that would have been that door closed. Right, uh, for right. For sure. But it, it went well and... Uh, it didn't really give me the acting bug or anything, but it just kind okay. of made me confident that, oh, I, if I need to, I can maybe do something like this. Yeah, so. I in my head, I was wondering if it was like one of those things where it was like you call an agent. You know, I don't know if you had an agent at that point. Like, get me in shows or something, whatever you say, like, get me in movies. Right. And they're like, we can get you on Conan. And you're like, OK, you know, I'll do um, it. so so I, I like that it was that. um just like everything, like a you know, almost like me reaching out to you to do the podcast. Oh it's, yeah, it's it's basically that. You know, that's how pretty much any cool thing in my life slash career ever happened. Like I never, um, I I found over the years if if you if you try too hard, it doesn't come. You know, like if you just keep pounding it, it just kind of gets further away. Like I I had several years like that where it's just like. Oh my god! Like nothing's ever going to happen again. And once I kind of stopped trying, it started working. Things started coming. It was very interesting. Yeah, and and I appreciate. I don't want to hold you too much longer. And I think we're. I feel like we're winding down. But I yeah. super appreciate you taking the time. Um, and I guess so that uh, Merge Records will be happy with you, as we mentioned. 
uh, the well, the most recent Superchunk record, What a Time to Be Alive. Um, so Here's to Shutting Up is getting reissued by Merge Records. Um, it, it is a record that I love a lot. I feel like it's it's actually was my first real introduction to Superchunk. Um, and cause I feel like it's like I heard songs here and there, but it was, I just bought it from a friend for like, you know, I was like, Oh wow. Um, and was, it's just a record I love. I don't even know how to like put it in the term. So, so it's, it was very interesting to me to see that it's getting reissued because I feel like I'm, I always tell people like, no, you should listen to this record, you know, this specific super chunk record. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that that's probably the record in our whole oeuvre that that I have the least kind of the least memory of, really. Just the, the actual like I couldn't name I could probably name two songs on that record because we 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 never play anything from it. Um, it was a it was a kind of a dark time. The the, oh, the totally. right the writing and the making of it, it came out on on um, September nineteenth. 2001 and we still toured and it was just kind of, it just sucked all over but uh and then i kind of wanted to quit the band <laughs> at that point and uh, i think laura did too but um um i think it's a great sounding record like that's yeah i i, I remember being in a coffee shop in new york around 2003 or something and a song came on came on from the album and i didn't recognize what it was but I knew it was us, and I just thought, "Oh my God, this sounds really good! Like this, like it sounds like a good band." And I think it was the last song. It was. Uh, is there a song called "Out on the Wing" on that record? I believe. I think so. it was that. It was yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, it has a lot of good space in it. Um, mm-hmm. That you know, I think some of the mid-era Superchunk records have, like "Indoor Living," starts having uh, a lot of that. But it's just, you know, it's like kind of. I remember watching like the documentary that came out. I guess a little bit after the record came out mm-hmm. and you all were touring with, um, and I think Mac would do it sometimes. It, it was like he was doing like synth or, and then the touring person was too, uh, you know, I'm yeah. trying to think of that. Um, but just like that kind of sound, you know, I guess a more mature super chunk, but still not. I mean, I love the record. That's what I'm saying. Oh, you know. that's great. That's great. Yeah. Uh, but I super appreciate you taking the time to speak with me you know my pleasure my pleasure it was fun yeah 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 it's fun to think about about it again and it, it was definitely the record that that kind of turned the whatever tur- turn turned me on my ear and really got me headed in a in a direction that i needed to go into in life so i'm, I'm always grateful for for this album you could have just stayed into things like Aerosmith and that would have led you maybe somewhere down to like, I don't know, damn Yankees. And then who knows? Who knows? Or, uh, who, who's the band with the chainsaw? Uh, Oh, Jackal. 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 Yes. And then like, yeah, you could have ended up in Jackal and then making it kind of dark here, but that might've led to like great white, you know, and who knows? Who knows? Welcome back. Thanks again, John Worcester, for coming on the pod. It was a lot of fun, and I felt like we could have chatted forever about who knows what. Pick up Superchunk's reissue for Here's to Shutting Up. It's available on the Superchunk Bandcamp or available through Merge Records. 
ask your local record store. They can probably order it for you too. Okay. Next week, we're chatting with the Hensley Brothers of Punk Lotto Pod about the 1984 Minutemen album Double Nickels on the Dime. Had a lot of fun chatting with Justin and Dylan, and it's the first time we've had two guests. Please check out their podcast. I highly recommend it. Like I mentioned at the top, check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. Follow us on social media. That's at spinningoutpod. And please leave a review and recommend us to a friend. Thanks as always to Sarah Blumenthal for editing the pod and Pretty Maddie for the theme music. With that said, see you next week. <laughs>